service, um, as, as uh, I mentioned earlier, this uh, pink cafe uh, steak and shrimp barbecue, we're looking for that. That is our Asia fundraiser, and they'll be selling tickets. Um, you can buy them either at the foyer or you can contact any leader here because they all have tickets. Everybody has, all the leaders have tickets, and uh, we'd like for everybody to be able to purchase them. They're $20, and it's steak and shrimp and all kinds of sides, all, every kind of salad you could think of. They're even making up salads, but a lot, a lot of different salads, and we would really like for you to come. And um, I was passing by Black Angus, and, the, and it was like tri-tip dinner, $18.99. I said, hey, we're serving tri-tip and shrimp and sides for 20 that's pretty good. So if uh, don't go out, don't go out on July 19th. That is your day to be here. Amen. To rejoice with us. Genesis chapter 14. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 14. Before we start, I have to ask you for your, uh, uh, how would you say? There's, gonna, there's a lot of hard words in here. So if I don't pronounce them right, uh, I tried my best. I, I read this over and over and over, and it's still hard. I still get tongue-tied. But there's a lot of difficult words here. So just follow along with me. Don't, don't turn off because as difficult as the words are, they're important. They're all important. <clears throat> so we're going to read Genesis chapter 14, 1 through 16. And it reads like this. About this time, war broke out in the region. King Amraphel of Babylonia, King Arioch of Alisar, King Kidorleomar of Elam, and King Tidal of Goam fought against King Bera of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Abma, King Shemaber of Zeboam, and King Bela, also called Zor. This second group of kings joined forces in Siddim Valley, that is the Valley of the Dead Sea. For 12 years, they had been subject to King Chedorlaomer, but in the 13th year, they rebelled against him. One year later, Chedorlaomer and his allies arrived and defeated the Raphites at Ashtaroth Carnaim, and the Zuzites at Ham, the Imites at Shavakiriathim and the Morites at Mount Seir, as far as Alparan at the edge of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, now called Kadesh, and conquered all the territory of the Amalekites and also the Amorites living in Hazazon Tamar. Then the rebel kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboam, and Bela prepared for battle in the valley of the Dead Sea. They fought against King Kedolaomer of Elam, King Tidal of Goam, King Amraphel of Babylonia, and King Arioch of Alisar. Four kings against five. That's what it all boils down to. As it happened, the valley of the Dead Sea was filled with tar pits. And as the army of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into the tar pits, while the rest escaped into the mountains. The victorious invaders then plundered Sodom and Gomorrah and headed for home, taking with them all the spoils of war and the food supplies. They also captured Lot, Abram's nephew, who lived in Sodom and carried off everything he owned. 
But one of Lot's men escaped and reported everything to Abram, the Hebrew, who was living near the oak grove belonging to Mamre, the Amorite. Mamre and his relatives, Eshcol and Anner, were Abram's allies. When Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, he mobilized the 318 men who had been born into his household. Then he pursued Ketolaimer's army until he caught up with them at Dan. There he divided his men and attacked during the night. Ketolaimer's army fled, but Abram chased them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. Abram recovered all the goods that had been taken, and he brought back his nephew Lot with his possessions and all the women and all other captives. Amen? Go ahead and have a seat. That was a lot of tongue-twisting words. In this particular passage of Scripture, what's important for us to know is that this is the first war that is recorded in the Bible. There has been no war up to this point in time. But now we have war. I looked up in the internet last night under the Army and War Journals. It says, since the year 3600 BC, the world has only known 292 years of peace. Since the year 3600 BC, that's 3600 BC, and then we started from zero, and now we're in 2008. So you figure that for 2010, 2,300 years, we've only had 292 years of peace. It's a lot of years that we've been fighting. During this period, there has been 16,000 wars and over 18 billion people have been killed. It's a lot of people. The story of a little boy who asked his father, Dad, how do wars begin? Well, let's take the First World War, said his father. That got started when Germany invaded Belgium. Immediately, his wife interrupted him and said, Tell him the truth. It happened when somebody was murdered. The husband snapped back at her. Am I answering the question or are you? At that, the wife set her jaw very tight, stormed out of the room, slammed the door as hard as she could, and the little boy and the dad were silent. And then all of a sudden he said, it's okay, daddy. You don't got to tell me how wars start. I think I know. <laughs> Genesis is the book of beginnings. And this book, we find that there were kings who got together to start this war. And the purpose of this particular passage of scripture is not just to give us facts for history, but it's actually to show us the courage that Abram had and his faith that he was able to give out. The marks of Abram's courageous faith as he faced these circumstances of the war were and are encouraging for us today. They are the same things that we need to fight the battles that we need to face. Every struggle of life, 
every attempt that we make to do great things for God is always going to be involved in a battle. Some historians call this war the Dead Sea War because it says that they met by the Dead Sea. Now, this is the background. The background is that you have some kings. You have four kings on one side. You have five kings on the other. And this king, King Chedorlaomer, was ruling and dominated for 12 years. He dominated all that countryside. And after 12 years, one of those kings said, you know what? I'm not paying him no more. Ever heard that story? Ever seen The Godfather? I ain't paying him no more. I'm not paying him to protect me. I'm not paying him not to invade my country. I'm not paying him no more. And you know, when one person says, well, I'm not doing that, then another one says, well, I'm not either. And I'm not either. So now you have four kings who have all gotten together and said, we're not paying him. And then you got the other five kings that say, oh, really? You're not? Okay, we'll see. We'll see about that. That's exactly how it started. That's where the war started, when there was rebellion going on between the kingdoms. So in the 13th year, they had said, enough is enough. And if you've watched any of the Godfathers, you've watched this, this whole scenario over and over and over. But see, Chedorlaomer, like any good Godfather, has to be able to know he can't let this slide. He can't let these people not pay him because if he lets them not pay him, then what's going to happen to all the other kings? They're going to not want to pay him either. So he's like, uh-uh, they got to pay up. So can't lose respect. Got to have respect here. So the king says, you know what? Let's, let's go to war. Let's get it on. So what he does is he successfully conquers all the little countries one at a time. And then he gets to the last group, and that's where Lot lives. And now he's going to fight the country where Lot lives, the king of Sodom. And he begins to get into the Jordan Valley, which is right near the Dead Sea. And so when all this came down, Abram's nephew Lot finds himself right smack dab in the middle of all this going on. See, you got to remember when Lot chose Sodom, he didn't choose it because that that's where God led him. He chose it because he saw that all the greenery was there for his own livestock. He saw it looked pretty good. It looked something that he would want because he would get financial gain because he could raise his family in prosperity. He looked at what looked good, not where he was being led by God. And so with all of that was going on, that's where he was. He didn't know when he picked that that there, there was going to be an international incident. He didn't know when he picked that all the things that were going to happen, all the repercussions behind that one decision. He didn't know any of that. All he knew was what he saw. And what he saw, he liked. And he made a decision on what he saw. And then the war breaks out. The war breaks out. He gets taken captive. Everything that he has worked for up to that time is gone. Everything. The Bible says that when Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, he got his little army together to go after him, and he caught up with them. Now, when I think of Abram's response to his nephew, 
We learn a lot about Abram through this. Some of this attitude we need to pick up. Because see, when Abram heard that his nephew had been taken inside of me, like everybody else, I would say, you know what? That's his fault. He picked it. He shouldn't have gone there. He shouldn't have made that decision. How many times have parents, we said that about our kids? Well, pff, you made that decision. It's your fault. How many times have we did that to people here in the church? Well, pff, you made that decision. It's your fault. You're on your own. You made your bed, sleep in it. You're not my worry. You did your own thing. Too bad. So sad. Can't cry now. There's no crying in baseball. Done. See, Abraham could have given off that kind of an attitude. He could have come off as real apathetic. He could have come off as totally unmoved and say, you know what, that's not my problem. I mean, I gave him an opportunity to make a right choice. He made the wrong choice. Oh, well, tough. But he didn't have that kind of an attitude. And if he did, he wouldn't be the man that he became, which is a great man of faith. But most Christians take on that other attitude. Well, pff, it's their fault. And we become apathetic to those who are in need. Like we give off, we could care less kind of an attitude. You know, one of the saddest tragedies, I, I read this and I was, it made me so sad. Because this is a true story that in the year 1271, Nicello, Nicello and Matteo Polo, who were the father and uncle of Marco Polo, were visiting Kublai Khan. And Kublai Khan was at that time a world ruler. He ruled all of China and all of India and actually the whole entire East. And Nicello and Matteo shared with him the story of Christianity. And Kublai Khan was intrigued. He was interested. And he told them, he says, you go back to your high priest, because he didn't really understand the, the, the role of Christians. He says, you go back to your high priest, and you tell them on my behalf to send 100 men skilled in your religion. Skilled. And when they come, I will be baptized, and I will baptize all of my barons, and every great man in my kingdom will be baptized. And we will be subject to receive the baptism, and we will have more Christians here than you do where you live. That's what was given. That was the mandate for all of the East, India, China, everywhere, Japan, Korea, all of the East. The sad truth is nothing was done for 30 years. 30 years, nobody did anything. And after 30 years, they sent two or three missionaries, but it was too late. They had gotten so into their religion that Christianity was nowhere around to make a dent. What kind of a difference would this world be if in the 13th century, China would have become a Christian nation. What kind of this world would this be if in the 13th century, India would have become a Christian nation? What if in the 13th century, the whole East had been given an opportunity 
to receive Christ. It didn't happen because it was apathy. It didn't happen because it was like, let somebody else do it kind of a thing. There was a story, it's an illustration where Satan called all of his top demonic aides to plan a strategy against the church of Jesus Christ. And Satan stood at the billboard, at the blackboard, and he's lecturing them, and, and he's illustrating the latest demonic strategies of how to be able to divide the church and, and squash the church and get them to minimize. And he says, okay, after this session, I want you to get out there and give your best effort and keep believers from winning the lost. That's his whole scheme. And as a demonic army headed out the door, Satan hollered, by the way, be careful, because if those Christians ever were to believe and act on what they hear or read in the word of God, then hell help us, because all heaven will break loose. We read in the word that Abram got 318 men to fight against five kings and their armies, 318 men. What would happen if 318 people got involved in serving God in some kind of ministry in this church? What would happen if 318 men and women decided to come out to pray on an international prayer night? What would happen if 318 people would go out to the streets and say, I'm not leaving this street today until I win a soul? What would happen to this city? What would happen to this county? What would happen to you if you went out and won a soul for Christ? Imagine if we had 318 people mobilized. What would happen to every member to this church? All heaven would break loose. See, Abraham's victory... And he won. Was amazing considering the odds. He had 318 men and he defeated four kings and their armies. That's the kind of battle that we're up against sometimes. We feel like, I only have this. What is this next to so much? What is this? I already had put this message together and then I get the email. What is the little bit that we have next to how much they need? It's so big. But I already had written this, and, I, you know, and it just really, I, had to, I have to speak to myself sometime. I have to read my own notes. I have to read, you know, God is speaking to me first. And I have to remi remind myself that regardless of how we feel, regardless of what the obstacle is, regardless of what the numbers look like, regardless of what we are or where we're going, that the Lord is in charge of every battle. In every battle. The Bible says that he is in charge, that the, the battle is the Lord's. It's not yours. When we take on the battle, we start fighting it the only way we know how. Husbands and wives start battling the only way you know how. Parents and children start battling the only way you know how. And all of it is worldly. All of it. The way you talk at each other, the way you put down each other, the way you, you know, sometimes even... You know, when, when uh, uh, girls and guys like each other, you do it like the world. Here, here's my number. Call me. 
Give me a break. That's not how you do it. You don't do it like that. You don't fight and, and every, uh, the battles that you go through in a worldly way. You do it through the word. You find out, is that, you know, I'm attracted to them. But that just may be me. That just may be the, 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 the lustful part. I was going to say flesh, but that's like too light. The lustful part. And you may have to get down on your knees and say, you know what? This, this thing that I feel, it's got to be of you. I remember when I, I really, really began to like my husband. And I didn't want to. I really didn't want to. And I was like, God, you got to take all of this. I do not want to think about him. I do not want to, uh, you know, like when he comes in the office, I don't want to be looking over there. I just want to stay focused on what I'm supposed to do, just focus on, on my job. And he'd always make sure that he came over to throw my baskets. He'd always make sure he came over two or three times in an hour. And uh, I always made sure there was trash. <laughs> but I do remember this. I remember praying, God, I don't want to lose my focus. I do not want to lose my focus. I do not want to stop doing what you call me to do. I am serving you now. I do not want him to be a distraction in my life. So just take out these thoughts. Take out these feelings. And I remember praying and praying. And I, I just didn't pray one time. I didn't pray two times. I remember falling asleep on my knees. That's how long I was praying. In the wee hours of the morning, I would be praying. And then finally, it wasn't happening. And I was getting, like, frustrated because I was getting distracted. And I'm like, okay, okay, God, okay, th then, then if you're not going to take these things out, if, if these feelings are of you and this is the man, then you're going to have to let him know because I'm not going to let him know how I feel. I'm not going to do anything. In fact, if he's over there, I'm going to be over there. If he's over there, I'm going to be over here. I am not going to be Janie on the spot. Not Johnny on the spot, Janie on the spot. And say, oh, oh, you're here too to serve and, and evangelize? Let's be on the same team. You know what? Don't play those games. You think, you think you're, you're, you're not obvious? Hello. Everybody else can see. If you really care for somebody, you pray about it. And you let them, let the guy pursue. Let the guy pursue. But then, guys, as you pursue, make sure that you've already prayed about it. That you're not going according to, I don't know why I'm getting off on this thing, but make sure you're not going according to what you see. Because you make a wrong decision, you're stuck, buddy. You're just stuck. You know, there's, there is no like, you know what? Uh, it ain't happening anymore. I don't care. You, you're stuck. You know, you may, you know I, I told the leaders the other day, I have, for some decisions that people make, I have what is called sympathy deficit disorder. <laughs> Do you all understand what that means? Sympathy deficit disorder. Like there are some things that my children, that they, they want to do, and I tell them, don't do that. <laughs> Just don't go there. 
Don't go down that road. Don't pursue. Don't, don't, don't. Do they listen to me? No. Do they do it? Yeah. So then they come crying. I'm like, I have sympathy deficit disorder. I know. I feel sorry for you. Because I told you, don't do it. But you didn't listen. So that has nothing to do with anything that's on here. <laughs> because the Lord doesn't do a lot of things. We do it. Because you didn't prepare your marriage, your family, your finances for the inevitable war that you're going to have to come up against, you can't go crying and say, God, look at where I'm at. No, look at where you're at because you didn't prepare. You didn't fight the battles as you went along. You just thought, oh, there's Sodom. It looks pretty good. I think I'll go there. But you didn't pray about it. You didn't fast about it. You didn't search God's word about it. You didn't get counsel. You didn't do anything. You just went according to what you saw. Well, in the world was Lot doing in Sodom? Last time we read the previous chapter, it says that Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom, which means that he was living on a little hill, and his tent, when he came out, he could see the world. He could see Sodom, but he was far enough away. He could just see it, but you cannot pitch your tent towards Sodom and think that it's not going to lure you. It's not going to entice you. You can't be calling your old friends and thinking, it's okay, I'm going to go to a party where you're at so I could witness. Give me a break. You can't pitch your tent towards Sodom and think that you're going to be able to stand. Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom, but the next chapter we find out that he was living in Sodom. He moved there. He was actually one of the elders in that city. See, there's a key difference between being with sinners and being identified with sinners. We're supposed to be around the unsaved. Otherwise, they're never going to have a chance to get saved. They're never going to be able to see the light that you're supposed to give out. But it's one thing to be with them, and it's another thing to embrace their lifestyle. Jude warns us. In verse 23 of how we're supposed to be in the world and not of it, he says, rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. There are still others to whom you need to show mercy, but be careful that you are not contaminated by their sin. Some of you are so careful when people are sick. Oh, don't contaminate me. I don't want to be around you. Don't shake my hand. Don't cough on me. Don't sneeze on me. Oh, you're so careful about getting sick, but oh, you're rubbing up against the world all, every day. You're listening to those jokes every day. You're talking smack every day at work, at school, when you're hanging out with your friends. You don't want to be contaminated, though. See, Lot walked right into the middle of Sin City, and he took up residence there. And then when the war came, he was outnumbered. He was alone, and he was swept up with the captivity that went on. It's a warning to the way that we might be living like Lot. How did he find himself in this kind of a situation? Well, first of all, Lot was carnal. He was fleshly. See, Lot had never grown up in his faith in God. And I see that with our children. 
Some of the kids that are here, you're teenagers or you're young adults, and you're here because your parents bring you. You're here. But you don't have a faith on your own. You don't have the ability to stand up on your own. And that's the way Lot was. Lot was leaning on his uncle, Abram. But when Abram wasn't around, Lot couldn't stand. Lot was carnal. He got to a certain point in his life, and then something stunted his growth. He was what you would call a spiritual dwarf. He was here. He was raising his hand, singing the songs, but inside, he was a dwarf. He had his mind on the things of the world rather than on spiritual things. He was like a, a, a little baby. And little babies we have in our nursery, they're only concerned with two things. Number one, who's going to feed me? And number two, who's going to clean up my mess? It's all they care about. They cry when they're hungry, and they cry when they're dirty. And sometimes... Spiritual dwarfs in this church, that's the only time we hear them. They cry when they're hungry, and they cry when they're dirty. Lot was carnal. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3 says, Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you like I would talk to spiritual people. I had to talk to you as though you belonged to the world or as though you were infants in the Christian life. I had to feed you with milk and not with solid food because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And you still aren't ready, for you're still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another. You quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove that you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people in the world? That's carnality. That's flesh. Lot was not only carnal, but he was troubled. He was troubled. In 2 Peter 2.8, and this, this t gives us a, a different side of Lot. It says, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. Lot was living in Sodom. We're going to be getting into that whole city and everything that it involved a little bit later on. But he saw a lot and he heard a lot. But the Bible said Peter calls him righteous. He was a righteous soul. And he probably had some sort of righteousness in him because he had gotten a lot from living with his uncle Abram. But he was living in sin. And I believe that when the Bible says he was tormented, it's because he was tormented. He was miserable because he was trying to have the best of both worlds. He was trying to be a Christian, but he was still living like the world. He was trying to come to church and raise his hands and say hi to everybody, but he was living like the devil all the rest of the days. And because... Lot was living like that. He wasn't able to enjoy either world. He couldn't be with uh, the Christians or the people who were serving God and be totally happy. And then he couldn't be in the world and be totally happy because he wasn't either one. My husband gave that illustration many years ago. I never forgot where this, this guy who decided that, you know, during the, the, uh, the war, he said, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let them know that I, 
I'm not choosing sides. I, I'm not going to choose sides. I'm going to wear a union pant and, and a Confederate shirt, and I'm going to go out there because I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want the Confederates to get mad at me. I don't want the union to get mad at me. So I'm just going to wear both. And he went out there and both sides shot him. They both shot him. Because you can't play both ends of the stick. You can't play both worlds. When you live like that, you're all messed up on the inside. You're tormented. You're, you're, you feel all twisted up. Because you're not everything that you know that you should be. Lot probably had a continual knot in his stomach that wouldn't go away. Some of you think, well, I'm all stressed out. No, it's not stress. It's because you're trying to live two worlds. You're trying to remember, and then you slip up. You slip up here when a word comes out of your mouth. You slip up out there because a praise the Lord comes out or a hallelujah. What causes someone to live in that kind of a, an environment that you would put that much stress on your spirit? How could a person do that when you have no peace? You have no joy. You can't sleep at night. You think you have insomnia. You don't have insomnia. You have two feet in two different worlds. That's what it is. You can't stand what you see, you can't stand what you hear, but you keep on looking and you keep on listening. Why? Like Lot, you may not have physical chains, but you have chains on the inside, on your spirit. You're still a prisoner. You're still a prisoner. See, when Lot made his decision to leave Abram behind and go down to the land of Jordan, he had no idea what was waiting for him. No idea what was going to happen to him. When we read about this battle, Lot wasn't even in the battle. You know why? Because he was depending on the army of Sodom to take care of him. He was depending on the world to take care of him. Some of you are depending on your jobs to take care of you. You're depending on your boss to take care of you. You're depending on your house to take care of you. You're depending on the security of the world. And every time you depend on the security of the world, it's going to be pulled out from under you. We're living in a day where nothing is secure anymore. Absolutely nothing. People who wanted to go into retirement, they can't even retire now. They can't, you can't even sell your house. You can't even live off your house. Because the value has gone down so low. When you trust in chariots and horses, which is the significance of the world, that's what, what the Bible says. When you trust in chariots and horses, because that was wealth, that was uh, security. When you had horses and you had chariots, you had it together. You had your life together. Well, some of you, you're depending on your chariots and your horses. Horses die. Chariots rot. You cannot depend on the things of the world to bring you security and bring you peace. As Lot was being led off in chains toward Babylon... I can't even imagine what he was thinking. But as he was walking like this, what in the world did I do? How did I get myself in this mess? You ever had those questions? Yeah. What, what, what was I thinking? 
Why did I do that? Why did I even go there? Why did I even pursue that? Why did I do that? You're thinking, why? Because he lost all his possessions. He lost his home. He lost his property. He lost his livestock. He lost his money. He lost everything he had. For what? For what? He chose this because he wanted to be able to have more. But he was actually a prisoner. He was actually a slave. He was now being deported as a slave. Sometimes we don't even realize how far we are away from God. Sometimes we can be so far from God. We're here. Okay, I'm here on Sunday. I'm here Sunday night. I'm here on Wednesday. But we don't realize how far we are from God until our decisions prove how far we are away from God. Till we're a slave being taken to another foreign land. Just like cows. Cows get lost. They're, they're, they all go out in a herd. But when they're grazing out in the pasture, you know, sometimes they get lost. And the reason that cows get lost is because cows just have their head down and they graze a little bit here. And they keep their head down and they just look right there. Oh, there's a little bit more. Oh, there's another one. Oh, there's another one. And they keep their head down, never looking at where they are in comparison to the herd. They're just looking for the next one and the next one and the next one. Pretty soon they find themselves far, far, far away. They have so totally separated themselves from the herd because they've all only been looking at what's going to gratify them. Oh, this is more grass. Oh, this is better grass. Oh, there's more over here. There's more over here. But they never look up. They never look to see where they're at in comparison to everybody else. They never look to see where... God is going because they're so focused on their own particular needs, on what is gratifying to them. You may not be wearing physical iron cuffs, but you can be wearing them in the spirit. See, it's a lot easier to get bound up with silk than it is with iron chains because silk looks fashionable. Silk looks good. And it gives, it gives off like, hey, I got it all together. Just ask that alcoholic who took that first drink. I'm sure the first drink was fun. Made you part of the crowd. That first cigarette made you feel all grown up, even though it made you sick. That first lottery ticket that you bought Oh, that was so exciting. You could hardly wait. You're watching the TV. Is it going to be my numbers? Is it going to be my numbers? But who was to really think that that first drink, that first cigarette, that first lottery ticket was going to tear your life apart? Tear your life apart. I got a phone call from a friend down in L.A. And she has an unsaved friend. And that unsaved friend called her and said, can you come pick me up at the casino? I don't have any gas. I lost everything. I can't get home. She called her at 5 this morning. I've been here all night. I have nothing to go home with. Can you pick me up? She was thinking when she drove over there, she had no gas. But man, I'm going to cash in. I'm going to just rake it all in. And she walked away with nothing, absolutely nothing. 
It's called compromise. And it's one of Satan's most successful weapons. Whenever we compromise our convictions and our morals to get what we want, we wind up in bondage to it. We want what we want, and we want it now. We can't wait. That's what Lot did, and Lot wound up in bondage. The very thing that you think is going to give you so much joy and so much freedom winds up binding you up. Freedom doesn't mean that you're free to live how you want. That's not what freedom is. If I read about freedom in the Bible, there are boundaries to freedom. There are boundaries to freedom. When Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he dealt with the people and he told them, you know what, you've been set free from the penalty of sin, but you can't live the way you want. Romans 6 verse 1 says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God could show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? How can we, have we forgotten that we were joined with Christ in baptism? We've been joined with him in death. Now you're free from your slavery to sin. You've become slaves to righteous living. You only have two options here. You're either going to be a slave to sin or a slave to righteous living. You can't have both. You think you can have your cake and your ice cream and your cherry on top with the whipped cream? No. It's one or the other. You can't have it all. You're either a slave to God or you're a slave to sin. Romans 6.16 says, Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Those are our choices. Our choices. See, sin can be a lot of fun. And... Right there with you. Anybody not agree sin can be fun? There's a lot of fun in sin. There really is. For a while. For a while. You know, you, you have all of the, I don't know how many of you saw that, that article, or it was on the news. 17 young girls made a decision to all get pregnant, and they're in high school. 17 young girls. They said, let's go have some fun. Let's go get pregnant. Let's, let's, have, let's grow our kids up together. We'll, we'll be best friends for life. BFF, that's us. Forever. We're all here. We all, our babies could all be best friends just like us. 17 of them all made this pact. Let's do it. How many of you are still best friends with your friend in high school? Three, four, four people, four people, best friends. You think 17 girls are going to be best friends for life? Look at what kind of a pact they said. Let's go have some fun. Having a baby, it ain't fun. Growing a baby, it ain't fun. Wake up at 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning every night with colic every night when they're sick, when they have a cough. Is there great times? Oh, yes, I wouldn't trade raising up my children for anything. But would I have done it alone? No way. No way. There's pleasure in sin for a season. And you can laugh about it, and you can get all the messes that you want to get into, but it's deadly. It's deadly. 
I read this, this illustration and it was like, oh, this is how exactly how it is. There was the carcass of a sheep, a dead sheep that was floating in a river. And an eagle saw it and went, oh, right, food. So an eagle comes down and he begins to start pecking at it. And the river's going and he's pecking at it and pecking at it. Pretty soon he's eaten parts of it here and there, but he doesn't realize that that river is merging. It's moving into a faster waterfall. And as he's on it and he's enjoying his meal and he's pecking and pecking at the sheep, when he realizes he hears something and the edge is coming real close. And by the time he realizes it, he realizes that his feet are all entangled in the sheep's wool. And he tries to get out and he can't get out. And he winds up going over and dying. Because he got all involved in satisfying himself and not paying attention to what was going on around him. Totally unconscious of what he was supposed to have been doing. See, Lot originally got involved for financial gain. He got involved because he felt the city could protect him. He got involved with a lot of things. He should never have gotten involved in it. But the last thing I want to I talk about is the, the, what Abram did for Lot. Abram, as I mentioned before, he went out there to go help his nephew. He got his army together, and he went out there. And he rescued his nephew. And what that meant to me was that was one of the values of this church, which is to restore the fallen. We reach the lost, revive the saints, and we restore the fallen. And it is our responsibility that we have to restore the fallen. It means to restore that you're going to have to go out and find someone that has fallen for the purpose of restoring them. Restoration is like the healing of a broken bone in someone's life. To restore a fallen bro brother or sister, there are several things that we're going to have to do. Number one, you're going to have to confront them about their sin. You're going to have to take them to a place where they can turn from their sin and turn back to God. You're going to have to bring forgiveness, and you're going to have to help other people to forgive them too. In order to restore, we have to make the first move. We have to make the first move. Now, when we're going to reconcile or, or bring restoration, we need to realize that it's all of our responsibilities. This is not just me as the pastor or the pastoral team or the leadership. Everybody has to be involved in part of restoration. Parents, you have to be involved in the work of restoring your relationship with your children. Spouses, you have to be responsible for restoring that relationship with your spouse. Churches, we have to be responsible to restore those people that were coming and they're not here anymore. Some of you know different people who are coming and for whatever reason, too hot, too cold, got an evil eye, got a nice eye, whatever it is. They're not here anymore. What are you doing to help restore them? What are you doing? Are you really praying for them? Are you really seeking to restore them? Are you really doing everything that you can to bring restoration to them. Because see, Abram went after his nephew. 
And because of that, Lot was given a second chance. Because of that, people in the city of Sodom got to hear about Abram's God. Because of that, Lot was able to get his family restored. So what does all this mean? It means, number one, that we cannot allow ourselves to get discouraged or overwhelmed by numbers. The numbers that Abram had was 318. The numbers that the four kings had was in the thousands. Don't get overwhelmed by numbers. Don't look at your bills and get overwhelmed by numbers. God's victories are not won by numbers. God's victories are won when we trust in him. It says that not by might nor by power, but by his spirit, says the Lord of hosts. By his spirit, we win. Secondly, if you know someone who needs restoration, go after them. Help them get restored in any way possible. And third, if you're sitting here this morning and you're a lot like Lot, if you are a lot like Lot, And maybe you pitched your tent towards Sodom. You were looking at it, but now you find yourself in it. You find yourself, you're smack dab in it. And you're realizing that the Spirit of God is not with you anymore. It's not the way it used to be. You don't feel the same. You're not reading the same. You're not praying. You're not fellowshipping with the saints. You're fellowshipping more with the ain'ts. Then you know that you might be going too far back. You might be not just talking with him. You might be embracing. You might be a little bit contaminated. And this morning, you might have to shed some of that contamination and get healed. Stand with me this morning. God's word is a word that changes us. It heals us. It restores us. It brings us back to where we need to be. And that's what the word is for you this morning. That if you find yourself, first of all, maybe being overwhelmed with the numbers, with your life, with things that are going on, and you just feel like, I don't know if I can do this then the altar is for you. Secondly, if you know someone that needs restoration and you haven't done what you're supposed to do in bringing them back, or maybe someone within your life as a parent, as a spouse, there has to be restoration and you need to do what you need to do. You need to be able to have the strength to do what you're supposed to do. Then the altar is for you. Or if you're here this morning and you say, you know what? I pitched my tent towards Sodom and now I'm closer in it than what I really wanted to be. I didn't want to be this far in. I, found, I find myself laughing with the dirty jokes, letting things slip out of my mouth, making wrong decisions, worldly decisions, and I need to get my heart right with God, then this altar is for you.